Today on In the Weeds, we have the privilege of sitting down with Tamika Morrow to hear her life story. As a child growing up in poverty in Flint, Michigan, she would imagine a different kind of life, a life of choices, success, and hope. Mike and I are so grateful for Tamika and her openness and her example. Although I only met her a few weeks ago, I feel profoundly impacted by her. I think she'll inspire you too. You're invited to listen in. Thanks, Tamika, for joining us. Thanks for having me, Mike. Absolutely. Be ready for this one. Sure, Did sure. you have a good imagination as a child? Um, I don't remember. <laughs> Honestly, like I'm thinking about that one. Like I really truly don't remember. Did I have a good imagination? Um, I had goals. I had dreams. I had hopes. Like I got to get out of here, <laughs> you know. And that was about it. I wouldn't necessarily call that imagination. Yeah. So let's let's but, go back to I got to get out of here. Yes. I got to get out of this place. Right. So you grew up in Flint. Yes. So growing up in Flint, uh, 70s and 80s. So don't just, be dating me on this. Night. I was very general. Oh, I was very okay. general. So go ahead, describe what it was like uh, growing up at that time. Um, in the seventies and eighties, what I remember most, I remember um, we used to live in like an apartment majority of that time, and then we would also live with my grandmother. So that's what I remember when I was a young, young child. So. Um, my dad, at one point, he was in the military. He was in the Navy. And so we had to move to Texas for only about a year or two. Then we came back to Michigan. And I remember we were in an apartment. Then we were living with my grandmother. Um, then we went from living with my mom's parents to moving with my dad's parents. Then we went back to an apartment. Then we went back to my mom's parents. So I remember all of that movement. But at that time, I was young, so I didn't necessarily know exactly the why behind it. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you described your upbringing, would you say poverty level? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, 100%. Because you got to remember, my parents were teenagers when I was born. Uh, my mom was 16 when she had me. Um, I think my dad at the time was 19. But they were kids. You know, they didn't understand what's going on. My dad, like I said, he went off to the Navy for a minute. Um, don't think he was in it too long because we ended up back in Michigan. Um, but they were kids, you know, still trying to figure it out, trying to find their way because they were married. Um, you know, they were, I mean, it was rough. You know, we stayed in you know, bad areas. Um, and I always tell my dad, I mean, that's why you got to make more money, right? So we can have better options. I used to get on my dad's nerve growing up. It was interesting. But How did it was, you take that? <laughs> I was like, <laughs> you got to have better options. You got to make more money. They didn't have any college education, no college degrees. So, of course, they were getting minimum wage jobs. Um, I remember, I always remember this. It was so crazy. And I was still young when it happened, but... My dad showed me his check because at one point he had a job where he was selling jewelry, I think, at a JCPenney's. And he brought home his check, and his check was like a dollar and some change. And I was, I think that's when I made that comment. Well, if you want <laughs> better options, you got to make wow. more money. But oh. it was, was that kind of like, point in the wrong place, maybe? Seriously, but it was that, was it like... commission for jewelry That was his whole check. That was a whole check. And I'm just sitting there thinking, like, how can you take care of a, a family, you know, on this check? On Saturdays, we used to go with my grandmother, it was my sister and myself, to something called St. Vincent de Paul Thrift Shop. And that's where we would get our clothes for the school year. 
So it was like 99 cent Saturdays. You know, you stuff a bag for 99 cents. You put all the different stuff in there. And that was that. And that's why, like, as an adult, you know, I always love this testimony that I went from shopping, you know, as a little kid in the thrift shop, you know, to shopping now at the malls in Paris. You know, <laughs> just looking at the glory of God and what he's done in my life. But we didn't shop at the thrift shop just because, you know, some people like secondhand clothes. But that was our only option. Right. You know, we couldn't afford anything How do you else. feel about it now? Do you ever go to thrift stores? Or are you Absolutely like, Absol- not. No way. <laughs> no. <laughs> no way no and how. I'm not against those that right. do. But I do believe that God's plan and his vision for us is something bigger and greater than that. And so for me, a thrift shop reminds me of lack. It reminds me of I had no other option, you know, but now I feel like God has afforded me the opportunity to not be in lack and to have options. Um, I remember I was in elementary school and this was a time when we moved out of my grandma's house and we moved to another neighborhood in Flint. And I think I was in the fifth grade at that particular time. And, um, and this was the part that always trips me out. That's when the kids start asking the questions, you know, ask me, are we poor? You know, are you poor? Are you poor? And I'm sitting there thinking like, why are they asking me these questions? You know, but then I would see um, like different cars that their families may have had versus what we had. Um, you know, I would think about the fact that I was going to the thrift shop where they're wearing brand new tennis shoes. I could never wear tennis shoes because we could never afford tennis shoes. Um, so it's like I started kind of wondering, like, why I don't have that option. And so I remember one time my dad came up to my school, and this was back when the cut-up jeans was not a style. <laughs> and he came to my school. I don't even know why, but he had on these cut-up jeans, and I was so embarrassed because kids were already asking, were we poor? And I was just so embarrassed. And I jumped out my seat and I said, why are you here like this? Don't come up to my school looking like this ever again. Like, if you're coming to my school, put on a suit. Don't come up to my school looking like this. Because in my mind, it was like, you know, you're feeding their narrative. <laughs> you know, they're asking our report. Then you come up here looking like you're homeless. Like, you know, what is happening? So I think that was one of the turning points when I realized that we're in a situation. You know, my dad, didn't even own a suit at that time. But we're in a situation where we didn't have options, you know, and we were kind of forced to make certain decisions based on limited resources, and I didn't like it. For people who maybe haven't experienced poverty, what are some of the things that you never take for granted now? Like you said, new mm-hmm. clothes, antenna shoes. What else comes to mind that you just... Something more important is um, safety. Um Growing up, you know, in the inner cities that we lived in, like, you, it wasn't safe to sit outside on a front porch. It wasn't safe to walk, um, go for a walk in the neighborhood. It wasn't safe for kids to ride their bikes around the neighborhood because it was a lot of gang violence. And back during that time, it was a lot of drive-by shootings. Like, they just go and just spray a whole neighborhood for no real reason. Um, so it was a lot of that. So you, you, you never felt safe as a kid. And even when you would go to bed at night, you never felt safe. You know, you're in a bad neighborhood. You didn't know if somebody was going to break into the house. You didn't know if they were going to, you know, gangbangers going to come and shoot it up tonight. Like, so it was that feeling of just not being safe, you know. So it was a lot of fear, you know. You didn't like when the lights go out because it's dark. You can't see if they're coming. Like, what are you going to do? Um, so that's something that was important to me is to 
when I have children, to put them in a neighborhood where they can feel safe, where the kids can go out and play outside. They can go ride their bikes around the neighborhood. They can go for a walk, you know, and not feel like their life is being threatened. Yeah, um, so that's something that, um, you know, I would never take for granted, just the, the, the fact of just being safe. Yeah, I, I can't even relate to that at all. And so it kind of goes back to then going to school, mm-hmm. you know, especially probably junior high and high school. Mm-hmm. So we were, I was at the Flint Southwestern High School and we were mm-hmm. sitting in the bleachers watching the JV basketball game. My friend goes, hey, Mike, look behind you. I look mm-hmm. behind me and there were bullet holes all through wow. the window. And I was like, wow, that's, mm-hmm. that was like very, I didn't know what to think of it as yeah. a 16, 17 year old kid seeing that. It was mm-hmm. crazy. So what did that look like for you in, in high school, especially with the gang violence and safety? So the interesting thing about it, I thought that I was going to, um, it was the school at the time where you had to be smart to get into it. So you had to test. So although it was a public school, you had to test to go to this particular school because my neighborhood stu- school, I think would have been either Northwestern or Northern. I'm not for certain, probably Northwestern. But you had to test to go to Southwestern. And so at Southwestern, when we get there, you're thinking, okay, I can breathe. It's a breath of fresh air. Um, Until one day, I remember this so vividly. We were, we went out for lunch, you know, uh, me and a friend and a few other friends, whatever that were, male friends. We went out for lunch. It was this great piece of place that we all used to love to go eat at. And when we came back... I saw it was like, it was some guys hiding behind some bushes, you know, and I was just looking kind of like, okay, what's this? Like, what's happening? What's going on? And then at that particular time, the guys that who was driving, he parks and he said, Tamika, get in the building. And I was like, okay, what's happening? Next thing you know, he popped his trunk. The guys that was in the back seat, they all go to the trunk. The guys that were out behind the bushes came up. It was like an ambush. And they started shooting. And it was like, come to find out it. The guys we were with were in a gang. We didn't know that. I thought they were some smart guys. Like, what are you doing? But they were a part of some gang. It was another gang. And so this whole shootout is happening. And I froze in fear. Like, I can't believe this is happening. And the people in the school like, Tamika, get in here. Get in here. But I couldn't move. And, you know, and I thank God for the friend that was with me. She ran back out and grabbed me and dragged me to the school. So I always thank God for her that she risked her life to save mine in that moment, which was very, because I couldn't move. And I was still at the car. So I know bullets was flying my direction. And I remember the principal walked out and they took a gun and they just hit him upside the head and he fell out on the floor or on the ground, should I say. But it was at that moment, I was like, wow, I'm not safe. Like, once again, like, it's not safe. You know, like, this can happen at any given moment, you know, where your life, once again, can be threatened, you know. And as a, as a kid, even as a teenager, I'm like, where do you go? You know, I was like, I have to get out of here. You know, like, I, I can't have this. It's my lot. Like, surely it has to be something better. Did you have any teachers or mentors or older relatives that were encouraging you or mentoring you? Um, No. I had one uncle that taught me how to spell college. <laughs> Okay, starting somewhere. Yeah, he taught me how to spell college. It's like all of my family knew I was very smart. But no one had went to college before. So, you know, it wasn't anything that they were pushing or anything. And my granddad and my grandma, their generation, raised their kids to go get a job. They didn't raise them to go to college. So I guess it was the same expectation. But I had this one uncle. He was funny. He taught me how to spell college. Um, But other than that, no. And, And to think about it now, I find that very weird because... 
um, now to understand about what those high school counselors are supposed to be doing <laughs> and high school teachers should be doing is mm. you would think if they had these kids and, and they even knew we were poor. They was act, they would ask me about our poverty issues or whatever. But you would think if you had some bright and shining stars in the group, you know, that they would rally around to try to bring more mentoring and to try to help, you know, push you to go the whole college route. But that never happened which is weird. So I never fully understood what their roles were, what they did, because they didn't encourage that at all whatsoever. I wonder why. Do they yeah. not get to know you personally? Or do you think that Everybody maybe... Everybody knew me. Yeah. <laughs> no, I was, well, I was, I was really smart, but not only was I smart, I was involved. Right. Um, because I never wanted to go home. You remember prior to the shootout, I thought my school was safe. Right. Right. So I used to volunteer. I did softball. Um, I tried it at a volleyball once or twice till I hurt my arm. Um, and then I also did like a dance team that they had. I was the president of the uh, National Honor Society. So I was involved, you know, because I didn't want to go home because I know home wasn't safe. But I thought this school with all these smart people was safe. So I was an involved student as well, too. So I really, I mean, I really don't know why I wasn't encouraged. I wonder if sometimes there's a culture that lacks hope. It's like if everyone's in survival mode and you collectively just stop hoping or stop imagining something different. Yeah. I feel, honestly, I feel like that is definitely happening. Um, If I may talk about even with Pontiac... A little bit. I feel like that is is definitely going on, and sometimes I feel like you know me and my team is the only voice that's that's speaking something different, um, yeah. which can can be a little hard. And I guess my thing, if if I think about it, um, I feel like that's a, a true segue where the church, you know, the body of Christ can really step in because we are the ones who have hope. The Bible said we're not like the world without hope, right? <laughs> we have hope, and that hope is in Jesus. So we should be able to bring hope, you know, to people. We should be able to bring life to dead situations. We should be able to bring light to what appear to be darkness, you know, and inspire people based on what we know to be true about who God is and how he's created us and how he sees each and every individual. To bring that light, to bring that hope, you know, that the world may not see, but, but we're here, right? We're supposed to be the salt and light. We're supposed to light this world up. Up, Kristen. Amen. <laughs> like, seriously, like, Amen even if hope good. is not there, like, once we get on the scene, hope should be restored, you know? And Absolutely. that's how I feel. Like, as a church, we can't sit by idly and watch destruction and deprivation of humanity happens. Like, as a church, we can't just sit back and hold our light and hide it under a bushel. We got to put it on a table so the whole world can see the light of God, right? Mm -hmm. And then be drawn to his light and be changed, mentally changed, just totally transformed. And so we are the hope (laughs) that that the world needs, you know? We just have to be willing to let that light shine. Which, which... This is the part where I've always been amazed by your stories. I've heard your story a couple times. Mm-hmm. And I'm always blown away because here you are, 15, 16, 17 years old. You're intelligent. You're involved. You're in a, not a safe area. Mm-hmm. You want to get out of poverty. Mm-hmm. But nobody's walking alongside you. Nobody. Nobody. Did you go to church at that time? Were you involved in a church? I wasn't involved. So every once in a while, I would go with my aunts. But it was, like, really sporadic because my dad was really pushing his denomination. And so, but at the time, his denomination, you know, he took us to predominantly white churches. He dropped us off 
<laughs> he dropped us off. <laughs> and but they were very racist um, mm. at the church. And so he didn't go in with you. No. And so they were very racist. You know, it was called the N-word several times. Like, in church. In church. No one wanted to sit next to us. It was, it was totally unbelievable. So um I just truly believe um it was. God, like I said before, he introduced himself to me as a little girl back when I was, I was like seven or eight, so maybe second or third grade. And that's where that journey and that relationship started. And I just truly feel like as I was growing up that he was teaching me and he was giving me some instructions. He was giving me guidance, like helping me to be able to understand what was happening, you know, in certain situations and with certain people. And and I, it was that, you know, that I believe it was him, you know, who gave me the idea to go to college, you know, to do something different, to break this cycle. And and that was the only inspiration, you know, and hope that I had. Yeah, because, again, I'm just blown away because your church experience was even bad yeah, growing up. that was crazy. And it's like, so you have bad church experience. You don't mm-hmm. have any mentors. Mm-hmm. You don't have anybody pouring into you right. at all. But eventually you made this decision that I am going to college. Correct. I'm going to break this. Mm-hmm. When did that happen? When did that decision, do you, was it like a process or was this moment that just signified I'm, I'm, I'm going to do something? Well, the thing was, ever since I was a little girl, you know, I always loved math and science. And I was always fascinated with the human body. And so as a little kid, I said, I'm going to be a surgeon. So that was my thing. I always wanted to be a surgeon. I wanted to slice people open, (laughs) look at their insides, and then put them back together again. And so because I wanted to do that, and that stayed with me for years, I knew I had to go to college to make it happen. But as I got older and started really realizing the impact that being poor had, it was just a, a further driver that I had to make this happen because this couldn't be my life. Wow. Can you tell us more about the role that faith had in changing the trajectory of your life? Yes. So um, I remember when I, like I said, I was either seven or eight years old because we stayed in this one apartment. And uh, in this apartment, it was, uh, you know, in a bad area as well too. But in this apartment, um, I was afraid. I told you I was always scared. You know, I was afraid. I had a fear of the dark because when the lights went out, I never knew what would happen, you know. And um, and I remember once I was laying in my bed and the Lord came to me and I always called it a dream. But it could have been a vision now that I think about it. But all I saw was him. And you couldn't even see the whole him. Like, you only saw his head and maybe his shoulders. And just that part of him was larger than my apartment building. And I was just, like, just blown away. And he told me I didn't have to be afraid because he's with me. And I remembered that. And it was that part that really started my faith journey because I was a little girl. I was scared. But now I see somebody and only his head and shoulders (laughs) covered up my whole apartment building. And he told me I didn't have to be afraid um, and that he was with me. And so I hung on to him, you know, because like I said, living in the inner city, you know, with all the different violence and the drugs and all that type of stuff happening, like it's so much fear, you know, it's so much scarcity, you know. And so to know that there's someone that's bigger than my apartment building that said that he's going to be with me, you know, I clung to him. Because the other element is that I didn't have a close relationship with my parents either. Um, and so I, I always felt like I was alone. I felt like I didn't have anybody, you know. I had my grandfather who I knew loved me, but everybody else in my family, you know, they had their 
their picks of who their favorite was. So I always felt like I was the black sheep of the family. Like I really didn't fit in, didn't, you know, fully have that, you know, support system. And so now I got this big God that tells me I don't have to be afraid and he's with me. And so as a kid who wanted to be loved and who wanted to be accepted by someone, you know, and who wanted to not be afraid and to know that there's someone who's going to protect me, that made me cling to God all the more. Words that he used to speak that I didn't find out until an adult that was actually a scripture, um, but he used to say, when your mother and father forsake you, I, the Lord, will take you up. I didn't even understand what that meant at the time either. But now I get it. He was just like, when your mother and father forsake you, I will adopt you and accept you as my own. I will be your father. And so I always feel like the Lord raised me. So if you got any problems, take it up with my dad. (laughs) 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 But but he like really, like he raised me. And it's like I felt his guidance. I felt his instruction. I felt his love, you know, growing up. And even I remember one time when I was 13, I was around 13, and I was in the mirror and because um, in middle school, middle school kids are not nice all the time, but they were just talking about different people and saying different things. And so I remember I went home and I was like, Lord, why do I got to have this big nose? And and why my eyes got to look sleepy? Why you give me bags and all this type of stuff? And why can't I look like Apollonia? Apollonia was a thing I remember back in the day. Was, she was in the Purple Rain movie. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I was like, why can't I, I look like her? And, um, which I saw in, the, in Flint, by the way. <laughs> I'll keep it up here, Mike. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and so I remember at that time, the Lord stopped me and he told me to look in the mirror and he started speaking words of affirmation over me. And he told me when I look at myself in the mirror to speak those same words to myself. And I started doing that every day. I would look in the mirror and I didn't even know that at that time he was building up my identity more and also my confidence because after a while I became so confident you couldn't tell me nothing. <laughs> like, do you know who my daddy is and what he thinks of me? <laughs> like, that's all that matters, you know? And so people say to me, you got so much confidence. Where do you get this from? And I was like, my dad, I'm trying to tell you, you know? <laughs> but it is was, that really like because you are a confident person? That's wow. where it and came that's where from. it started. It's like really yeah, I love a relationship that. with God. Yep, that really appeared out of thin air. Yeah, it did. That's again, your story is just remarkable. Yeah. I, I think of two words when I hear your story it's set apart mm-hmm. for sure. You know, yeah. I, I just like nothing was going for you, right? No one. They, maybe somebody believed in you, but nobody walked alongside you, showed you Not the way, all. encouraged you, and, and yet here you are. Mm-hmm. So before we get to where you are now, mm-hmm. so God high school happens. You. Yeah, yeah. God pursued you. God pursued you. Yeah. He's That's, so beautiful. Yeah. yeah, very much so. So then college comes, mm-hmm. and it's like you like to, you always wanted to cut people up and look at their insides when you're little. It's like this whole m- medical world uh-huh. that you wanted to pursue. So talk about how that happened. So it was time to apply for college. Um, But I always tell people I woke up pregnant my senior year. That was that. And so then I was like, well, what schools can I go to now? You know, because I got accepted into that school. I was a senior. It's like, okay, what what should I do? So I applied to University of Michigan Ann Arbor. And I applied to University of Michigan Flint. So I got into both. But then I was sitting there thinking, huh, well, University of Michigan Ann Arbor is 45 minutes away. University of Michigan Flint is about 10 minutes away. You know, maybe I should just go to that one, you know. And um, then I was thinking, do Ann Arbor, like, do they have dorms for people with children? Like, how does that work? I didn't know. And going back to that, not having that mentor, not having that guidance. So I decided to go to University of Michigan Flint. And I remember um, starting off the chancellor call, like, you know, 
what, what are you doing? You know, and I was like, what do you mean? I'm starting school. He was like, you got into Ann Arbor. You should really go to Ann Arbor. And I was like, well, you know, that's 45 minutes away. This one is like up the street. <laughs> I mean, but that's like, that's how clueless I was, right? And so I end up going the U of M Flint route. I'm still excited to pursue medicine. That was still my thing. You know, I was I said I was going to be a statistic either way, right? Mm. So I was going to choose to be that positive statistic. That yes, I did have a baby as a teenager. You know, however, I'm not going to be that. You know, that teenager. I'm gonna be this teenager. I'm going to control my narrative. And so that's when I took a class called Careers in Health my senior year and found out about nurse practitioners. Never even heard of them prior to. Um, so that's how it all started. I decided, okay, I'm going to finish my undergrad in biology pre-med. Then I found that I had to be a nurse first. So I did a second career, second degree program at Wayne State University. Um, got my RN and then I went back two years later and got my master's as an adult primary care nurse practitioner. So your daughter, mm-hmm. what's her name? Which one? Your first one. Abria. Abria. Mm-hmm. And what's Bria doing right now? Abria lives in Texas. Um, she has her master's degree in, oh, they be making up degrees nowadays. So her undergrad is in marketing <laughs> uh, from Ball State University. She is not a teen mom, praise the Lord. She's 29 and still not a mom yet, but she's working on the marriage part. So amen to that. <laughs> um, and she also has her master's degree in management. It might be business management or management or something in nature that she has uh, got from SMU, which is supposed to be like a big deal down in Texas. And so she's working in the marketing field. She started her own marketing and brand management company as well, too. So she's doing really, really well. And and just a little bit on that part, um, when I started my career as a nurse practitioner and I saw how hard they make us work, <laughs> and um, I was like, they're making us work so hard, you know, to build up all this wealth for other people. What about generational wealth for, for my generations, right? And so that just really sparked that whole thing of entrepreneurship in me because um, I was like, I want to be able to build wealth so I can leave to my children's children, you know, that my children can, can have this money and not work so hard to make somebody else rich. That was like my thing. Um, so my oldest daughter, Abria, she picked up on an entrepreneurial spirit and so she's doing her thing, and I am so proud of her. My daughter tells me she imagines her her mansion, and I get to live on the third floor, she says. Oh, okay. <laughs> and as long as I'm not overbearing, she won't make me clean it. She said oh. I can take care of her kids. Wow. Okay. Wow. Okay. She's funny. Very good. <laughs> Tell her like that. <laughs> she's doing you a favor that you being the nanny, right? right. <laughs> All right. So there was something uh, posted on Facebook a while back, and it's a quote from you. Okay, said, God and education were my solutions. With the help of the Lord speaking life into me, encouraging me along the way, and giving me guidance, what seemed to be an impossible feat became my reality. The curses of generational poverty was broken and destroyed. I now live the life I dreamed about, and I'm passionate about helping others do the same. That is the truth. And so now here we are, 2023, or even like the past few years, and it really sense that God set you apart and it's not just for you. Correct. Mm-hmm. And right. I think with our next episode, we're going to dig into what did God set Tamika Morrow apart for? Mm-hmm. Because what you've been doing in the city of Pontiac and the Pontiac High School uh, with these students is incredible. Mm-hmm. And oh, thank you. And I'm excited to to have that conversation. Me and too. I can't wait. Your recent trip as well with these crazy students. Woohoo! So, we wore them out, Mike. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> thanks. But, yeah, thank you for for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. 
You have been listening to Kensington Podcast Network In the Weeds with Kristen Pelletier and Mike Nelson. Stay tuned for future episodes. And to learn more about the Kensington Podcast Network, you can visit kensingtonchurch.org slash listen.